Better Call Paul is a production of Lola Media. Say hi, Lola. <gasps> Hey everyone, welcome back to Better Call Paul, the show where we talk about the legal issues behind the glitz and glam of Hollywood. I'm your co-host, Paul Sarker, former Marvel attorney and current big law attorney. And I'm your other co-host, Mesh Lakani, pop culture enthusiast, founder of Lola Media. I'm here to dissect stuff with Paul, and uh, we've got a good one for you this week. It's uh, episode six, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about Hollywood, NFTs, and the metaverse all things celebrities. Is it good? Is it bad? We'll get to it later in this episode. It's probably a little bit of both, right? We'll get into that a little bit later. I know you said you didn't want to talk about him, but we got to talk about him again because <laughs> he, he got released. Oh, Your boy, man. Juicy Smollett. Is it Juicy or is it Jesse? It's, there's a U. I know, but don't they call him Jesse Smollett or is it Juicy Smollett? Well, well, he'll have to call in and let us know now that he's <laughs> yeah. not locked up. Um, so, I know you love this story. You love this guy. That's why you keep I think it it's up. such a great story. It's like the Getty kidnapping, like the stage kidnapping almost. But so anyway, for those that don't know, he was sentenced last week to 150 days in jail, which he appealed. So he was released after six days in court. So he's out now on appeal and I guess the rationale was that the amount of time it would take for the appellate process to play out would be longer than 150 days. So, you know, if he waited throughout that whole time and then he won on appeal, there's nothing they could have done for him. He would have already done the time. And so, you know, one of the founding principles of our justice system, which we don't always adhere to, unfortunately, is that it's sort of better to have a false negative than a false positive, right? So we don't want to punish someone that's innocent. We'd rather err on the side of, being wrong about that. So what does it mean for him now? Is this case over? Is he done? He's out and about and like just chilling like he won his case or? No, no, he didn't win. He's just on appeal. And so the appellate court's like, okay, well, while we're deciding whether he was wrongfully convicted or not, whether there was some sort of procedural error or evidentiary error at trial, we're just going to let him out because let's say that takes six months to decide. He will have spent his whole jail sentence waiting for the appeal. And then if on appeal it was determined that he shouldn't have been convicted, then they can't undo that. So he spent six days and now he's waiting for the appeal. Assume if the appeal is rejected, then he would have to do his jail time. Interesting. And clearly he can still try to negotiate his next deal for Empire as a bigger star. <laughs> what are the chances that this guy gets to work in Hollywood again? Wouldn't he be seen as... Um it's just too much collateral damage. Like he's not worth the risk for any show or any production. I've got to imagine he's like blacklisted now. I don't know. I mean, I know what he did was bad and it was kind of narcissistic. And you know, I can't speak for the city of Chicago and all the police that he sort of made look really bad. That being said, I think we're a second chance society and it's conceivable to me that someone could bring him back just for the, the shock value that's true. In that we always say that about, you know, sort of professional athletes, like, okay, this is the last straw. He so and so did something or got involved in a, you know, sticky situation and is at the end. And then usually they resurface on another team somewhere because there's just such a competitive drive. Sometimes it becomes amoral. But I, I would I would be surprised if he was out of the public eye forever. Yeah. I mean, like, and for those who don't know what we're talking about, make sure that you listen to our last episode. But we Jesse Smollett is an actor who was on the show Empire, and then he created this whole hate crime thing against him. Turned out it was all, I think, I guess it was considered a hoax, and then he's on trial for it. But I think probably at least this guy gets a reality TV show. 
Why wouldn't you offer him that deal? Or at least a documentary. Totally. Maybe there's like, you know, behind the scenes look at how much he paid the brothers. The brothers are probably going to get some sort of deal too. The brothers that he paid, they're kind of like gym buddies or something. They were in really good shape and he sort of paid them to pretend to rough them up and I think they have a very interesting story as well. So I'd love to hear more about it. You know, I'm, I'm a bigger fan of the story than you, I know. <laughs> You, you cringe every time we bring it up, but um, <laughs> we got one more week out of it. Now that you mention it, if there's a documentary, there's a reality TV show, given how much I don't like the story, just simply because I'm like, man, this guy, I'll watch it. I'll definitely watch it. So I'm probably one of the target people who want to know what the hell is going on. I would love to know whether this guy has a videographer around him all the time and he's documenting this whole life because that's a show that you could sell to Netflix. Or worst case scenario, he's on the next season of Love is Blind and nobody knows it's him, and he finds love there. You gotta say, you know, he's got—he's not lacking personality. <laughs> like when he when he said to the judge, "I respect you. I did not do this, and by the way, I'm not suicidal. So if anything goes down, I mean, it's not like a 20 year sentence. It was 150 days. Granted, it's—I mean, it's serious. It's almost half a year, but you know, he's got a flair for the dramatic for sure. Speaking of drama, though, <laughs> it's March Madness. Oh yeah, I know you're a UVA guy. I'm a Duke guy, so. Well, UVA didn't make the tournament this year, but Duke's playing and hopefully they give Coach K a championship in his last season. Do you fill out a bracket? I was curious. I used to be really, really into it. And I used to fill out the bracket. I would watch the games all the time. When I was living in DC, I went and saw it at the Verizon Center. I enjoy it. You know, I usually, it's nice when you have a vested interest. I mean, UVA just continues to disappoint. It's like sometimes we're, we're good, sometimes we're not good. We didn't even make the tournament now. They won a few years ago. Yeah, I know. And I have a, my buddy, um, my buddy who played football at UVA, I've got a lot of friends who were on sports teams there. He bought me a hat. It was a UVA national championship hat. And I wore it around for a little bit till I, you know, realized it was a little douchey, like walking around New York City wearing a UVA. Oh, I'll wear my Duke one. Well, next <laughs> when we roll out video, I'll wear if, if Duke wins again, we can, well, it'd be a nice little side bet. Then you have to wear the Duke hat. Done. Let's do it. But, you know, and hopefully, hopefully you guys do well. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. I mean, it, it's always nerve wracking. And I think it's interesting because I, you see some statistics out there. You know, billions of hours of productivity lost or people <laughs> filling out brackets. And I'm, I'm not as into it as I used to be either, just because it's, I've been so busy recently. But I remember, you know, those Thursday, Friday games when there's like three games on at a time yeah. and no one's getting any work done. Uh, no. I mean, not us, obviously, but <laughs> you know, other people. It's a huge money making business between the viewership rights and, you know, where they're what network does March Madness play on? So it's really interesting. This year, they split it. So the women's tournament is on the sort of ESPN family of networks. And the men's tournament is on CBS, TNT, TBS, True TV. So the sort of Viacom, CBS family of networks. Well, that's, a, you know, I mean, for a later episode, because we always dive into these things and realize that they're an episode on its own, but like college basketball and going through like how these contracts work, obviously between the players, how they're able to potentially profit off this. I know that's always like a gray area, something that people argue back and forth on, but obviously the TV deals, the TV rights, et cetera. Like it's always interesting to me to see how these networks bid for the ability to have March Madness playing on their networks, which again, it's like most people in the country or at least sports fans are watching this. Yeah, I think, and I, I should know this because I actually do a lot of research in this space as far as NCAA rules and regulations, amateurism, the legal developments in it, name, image, and likeness rights, whether athletes can sort of monetize their likeness while in school. This is all changing very rapidly. 
But I think during COVID, they said something like 90% of revenue for the NCAA men's basketball programs is from the tournament and the television rights and the advertising that they generate. And I mean, ticket sales are a part of that too. Yeah. But it's almost like without the tournament, these teams don't break even in their expenses. And and that's covering scholarships and things like that. But we we can fact check that. And we should dive in deeper to it. And speaking of TV deals and streaming deals, Let's talk about the whole uh, M&A deal right now, Discovery Plus and Warner Media. Tell us what's going on there. There was an announcement this week that Discovery CFO basically said, hey, we're going to combine with Warner Media. Initially, we'll bundle our products together. Maybe we'll have a single sign-on. And then long-term, what we want to do is just create a single streaming product, which is HBO Max plus the Discovery Plus spheres of content, which don't really overlap as of today. So it should, in theory, create a more compelling offering to bigger groups of people. And, you know, they're just getting into the streaming wars and and they want to have an offering that's going to compete with Netflix, Amazon, Disney, and the Disney bundle. And the background on this is rewind the clock. So AT&T has had a little bit of a checkered past with their M&A activity. M&A, mergers and acquisitions, for those that don't know, it's you have a company and it's when they buy or sell other companies in order to sort of improve their portfolio or to strategically enhance their business. Sometimes it works really well, and we can talk about one of those examples in a bit. And sometimes it doesn't because either they spend too much or they take on too much debt or the companies, they don't fit together in actuality as well as you think they might. And so in this case, just to rewind, AT&T in 2015, they bought DirecTV And then in 2018, they bought Time Warner. And the plan was, okay, they were this telecom behemoth. Once they got into television with satellite television and then Warner, they could just sort of combine, hey, we have cell phones and phones and then voice over IP and broadband. And then we'll add television to that. And then by the way, we'll buy this huge content company and movie studios and everything. And we'll just own all. We'll own the verticals. We'll own the content. We'll own the distribution. We'll own the telecom, the way it gets to people. And they'll just charge, you know, whatever it was. And so it became a really huge company. And they took on a lot of leverage to buy both DirecTV and WarnerMedia. And then over the years, it turned out that it wasn't as profitable or synergistic as they thought it would be. So then they've sort of been undoing those transactions. Earlier this year, they sold off 30% of DirecTV. And then in, in 2021, they also announced that they were spinning off Warner Media into this new entity. So Discovery and Warner Media are going to create a standalone independent company. If you own Discovery, you're going to get 29% of this new company. If you own AT&T, they have 71%. And then as it's spun off, shareholders of AT&T are going to get basically a quarter share of this new company. It is super interesting just to see how these big behemoths start acquiring all these different content companies. And then again, from the consumer standpoint, how we engage with it. I mean, Discovery Plus, I've been aware of for a while. I've yet to pull the trigger. It's probably the only streaming company at this point that I have not subscribed to, given I subscribe to quite a few of them. And, you know, the Discovery Plus thing, one of the reasons why I'm very well aware of it is because one of the bigger and more famous YouTubers, David Dobrik, has a travel show with all his friends on Discovery Plus, which is interesting because like, they're trying to make it more young content, but also, I wouldn't say racy, but just a little bit more unfiltered where I'm intrigued by the show. It sounds interesting, but it's like one show is not going to get me to sign up for Discovery Plus. But I like the idea of like a more, I wouldn't say R-rated travel show, but I mean, we all love like Anthony Bourdain and No Reservations and then Parts Unknown 
And I think travel shows and cooking shows that have a little bit of an edge to it is really interesting. So I would love Discovery Plus to do more and more of that, which would probably get me to subscribe to it. Right, and imagine. So Discovery, I mean, David Zaslav has been running Discovery incredibly successfully. He's got a model that works as a content executive. You know, I'm sure there are critics of it that think maybe formulaic or they're taking the same show and they're kind of just changing the skin and making these shows are very derivative. But- He's good at what he does, and it's been very profitable. And I think if you add what they bring, which is sort of the reality TV aspect and you know nature, science, human interest, to the scripted programming that you get in HBO Max, it's much more close to something for everyone. I mean, it's missing that sort of sports angle. So you have like the Disney ESPN Plus thing. Discovery may not have that, but it should still be a very compelling Discovery HBO Max offer, whatever that is. It'll be interesting to see, but let's take a break real quick. And then when we get back, we'll talk about our main topic, which is Hollywood, the metaverse, and NFTs, and talk about someone very specific who has done very well with acquisitions of content companies. Let's get into our main topic where we're talking about Hollywood and NFTs and that whole connection. But to start it off, we'll talk about the guy that both of us are fans of, former Disney CEO and executive chairman Bob Iger, who is now getting into the metaverse. But before that, to our point about acquiring content and making the package and the streaming deal look more attractive to consumers, Bob Iger did a fantastic job while he was at Disney acquiring Pixar, Marvel, Lucasfilm, and just making it very appealing to folks. I mean, I love Pixar, love watching their movies. I think Marvel, clearly we've talked about it, has done a tremendous job, not only with their movies, but now the offerings on Disney Plus with like shows like What If? And, you know, we've got a bunch of ones coming. They just announced Miss Marvel. And then of course you have Lucasfilm, which had The Mandalorian and then Boba Fett, which wasn't that great. It ended up being more of a Mandalorian show anyways, but they're doing their thing, man. They're just rolling out stuff that he had bought during his time there. And the offering is great. He did a great job with those acquisitions. Absolutely. I mean, as we were saying, M&A is kind of a hit or miss thing. And so Bob Iger, as you said, he was able to make acquisitions strategically that fit into the Disney ecosystem and were value creating. For example, you take intellectual property and emerging technologies. So Maker Studios, Marvel, Lucasfilm, like you said, Disney had an infrastructure to make and distribute movies, to make consumer products, to license them, and they had theme parks. And so if you have that infrastructure, those sort of bones, and then you add Marvel to that, or Pixar and Lucas, it just enhances everything. And that's what his strategy was. And so in hindsight, it looks like, hey, this is super logical. But at the time, I'm sure people were shocked. I remember, because I actually... This is a, a funny story, or not even more unique, but I had just started my career at Marvel. I don't think a lot of people knew that Disney was going to buy Marvel. It got announced, and literally it was on my first day. And on my second day, <laughs> I was getting into work, and I saw Bob Iger standing outside the office of Marvel on the street on Fifth Avenue, and he's on his cell phone, and I heard him say, I'm at Marvel today, right? And I honestly, at the time, I didn't know who he was, but I just like the super, like, handsome, suave, tall, smooth guy just standing outside Marvel. I walk up, I go into my little cube area, and all of a sudden there's like a, a presentation to all the employees, and Bob Iger spoke. And 
you know, he basically said, hey, you know, we love what you do. We're not trying to change you. You guys are all cast members now. We're not planning on like laying offs or anything. We're just like, we, we want you to do what you do, but just do it within our ecosystem, right? And I got to say that transaction had such an impact on my career and the type of things that I got to work on and opportunities, you know, moving to LA and working on film and TV and live events and all that stuff. I mean, you could say it, it all stems from that transaction. How was it moving from Marvel and then you became essentially working for Disney? Like, did you feel that there was like a culture shift? Did you notice anything different? Or you were just like, oh, now it's just Disney at Marvel. Like, did you notice any changes after the acquisition? There are tons of changes after the acquisition. I think it was all sort of additive. You know, companies are huge and they have different divisions. So certain divisions kind of merge really quickly and other divisions merge more gradually and some remain standalone. But as far as looking back, the first couple of years were very impactful because there were some corporate restructurings. My boss got promoted to running Marvel Studios Business Affairs. So he moved out to L.A. He took me with him. I started doing a lot more L.A.-based work on the films and TV shows before streaming. So it was like, I think, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. and then getting into the Netflix series. Right. Before this Disney Plus was was not even really envisioned. It wasn't an actual business unit within the company. So yeah, things changed dramatically. We went from making one movie every two years to three movies a year. That would, I remember he said that. He was like, we want to just ramp up production. And so, you know, that's just a small sort of like snippet of what it was like. Obviously, to tell you all the different changes would take many episodes. Well, it's interesting. Like, look, the guy clearly saw streaming ahead of a lot of folks and like Disney Plus the numbers make sense. Like they compete with Netflix and he's done a tremendous job there to the point where getting to our main topic, Hollywood and the metaverse and NFTs, our boy Bob Iger has just joined the board of Genies, a company that creates avatars and virtual identities that can move through the quote unquote metaverse, which are these virtual worlds, which is a big component of this whole Web3 movement. And I think for someone like a Bob Iger, who's now stepped down as executive chairman at Disney, to put himself on the board of a company is a big statement. This guy has a great reputation and he's putting his reputation on the line again. And I think it's one of those moments where like, okay, there's a lot of celebrities shilling NFTs and stuff and we'll get to that. But like a Bob Iger joining a board and saying like, hey, avatars in a digital world, virtual identities, this is going to be big. The guy can clearly see the future. So it's interesting. And Genies, they look at all these different digital worlds as an opportunity to create these virtual identities in the form of an avatar and have everything from like accessories to fashion lines for them. And they already have an existing relationship with celebrities and entertainment groups. Like they have a deal with Warner Music Group, Universal Music Group, Jennifer Lopez, Rihanna. And I think it's interesting for him to join this. And again, it makes a statement. He has a quote that was in Fortune and he said, I've always been drawn to the intersection between technology and art, and Genies provides unique and compelling opportunities to harness the power of that combination to enable new forms of creativity, expression, and communication. And yeah, it's interesting because he did that at Disney, and now he's doing it again in this whole Web3 world. Absolutely. I mean, listen, I am a big fan of Bob Iger, but I do think we have a tendency to sort of, history is told by the perspective of who's telling it, right? So let's be clear. Bob Iger did not invent streaming, right? Netflix was around before Disney Plus, and to a degree, they were chasing Netflix to try to compete with them because they realized that linear television was shifting. Netflix was very successful. So they got into streaming and put a big emphasis behind it, and they had a lot of content. But it's not as if 
Disney Plus created streaming. Right. So I just right. want to be clear about that. And the other thing with Genies, it's been around since 2017. They have exclusive deals with labels. So they're not a fledgling company. I mean, they've raised, I think, $100 million. And the concept of avatars, I think their CEO, Akash Nigam, he would say that, listen, that the concept of avatars has been around for a while. Right. It's not yeah. like this is the first company that's getting into avatars. You could say that Roblox, Fortnite. I mean, these companies are also metaverse companies in a way. I mean, just Xbox Live in general, too. Right, exactly. But what I think is unique about Genies is, I guess what they're trying to do is have your avatar exist within metaverses that could be owned or operated by different companies. And that right. that presents a lot of really interesting legal questions also, as far as liability, questions about identity and ownership and what legal regime even governs? You know, does it follow jurisdictional lines between countries or states, or is it something completely different? Is it based on where your servers are or something else? So, I mean, there's just so much out there that it's hard to unpack. Yeah, so I'm curious, like in a game like Fortnite, or even like when people are playing Red Dead Redemption and GTA, they're doing online multiplayer where there's a bunch of people running through these worlds. I mean, obviously those games are, you're shooting people um, and you're trying to kill them, but there's no legal implications of that. And so how would this be any different or like how would you see it being any different where you would potentially need some laws in place or regulation in place within these worlds? Is it more that if someone is hosting their NFT and their metaverse house and someone came and like hacked it or robbed it, is that what we're talking about? Yeah, I mean, I just don't think we know, right? I right. mean, I think these things are going to shake out. If people can get exploited or harmed or robbed in the metaverse, just like they can in real life, I mean, once the metaverse becomes sort of where people will spend a fair amount of their time and contribute a lot of resources, then I think that you could have things like property and property can be stolen and needs to be protected. And so there's a legal regime to sort of enforce property rights. How does that apply in the metaverse? Let's say- you spend you know millions of dollars on an NFT and someone takes it out of your wallet or someone you know dupes you into selling it for a super low price. Is there a remedy? I don't know how that actually is going to play out. Yeah, I mean, is there a jail in the metaverse where you get sidelined for a little bit and you can't do anything or you lose whatever currency you're using within the metaverse? I'm interested in how these deals look like when a genie makes a deal with celebrities or makes a deal with Universal Music Group. Clearly, there's a lot of licensing stuff here. Probably like, look, if Jennifer Lopez or Rihanna, and Rihanna, who's known for her makeup line, is in the metaverse now creating like accessories and fashion lines, I would assume that they want good deals in place to make sure that their IP within that is protected. Yeah, absolutely. And, and it's also, how do you authenticate this, right? Like, so let's say I wanted to make my avatar just a little bit more buff, right? Or a little <laughs> bit whatever, or, you know, change the color of my eyes. Could my avatar then look like someone else? And you know, let's say my avatar commits a crime or steals something, but it looks like somebody else. I mean, it's just the questions of identity and sort of like uniqueness and ownership, I think are still being answered and developed. I would love to see your avatar at some point because what I imagine you being is like the taller Jack version of Paul in a beautiful Tom Ford suit walking around with your briefcase, similar to like, for those who've seen Ready Player One, which is an example of what a metaverse would be with currencies and you know multiple IPs across different universes in that movie, which is really cool to see. But then the main villain in the movie is his version of his avatar is like this much bigger, intimidating like suit. 
uh, in it. So, Paul, I would love to see what you end up coming up with with your avatar. I mean, we should be making our own avatars for Better Call Paul. You should that. find me on Roblox. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I mean, I feel like it's it's a spitting image, but some could maybe say that I, I took some liberties, but that's probably another episode. <laughs> but I, to answer your question, I think Bob Iger is a brilliant, visionary-type leader. Having him on the board is only a good thing for genies. And as you said, I don't know that just having some random superstar, once in a generational athlete on your board carries the same carries the same weight. I agree. You can always make a bad move at some point, especially if you're now, if his entire career was built within Disney, whether it was at ABC starting there and then ESPN and then eventually got Disney and Marvel. What could be interesting is that Bob Iger on the board presents an opportunity for genies to make deals with all the assets that Disney holds. I mean, what better way than having you know, someone who made all those acquisitions and helping you get those deals done, where if they have a deal with Universal Music Group and Jennifer Lopez, maybe they have a deal with Iron Man and they have a deal with Spider-Man and, like, and those IPs. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, these things have been in the market for a little bit of time. It's still in its infancy, quote unquote, but it's interesting because this seems to be the future and you know maybe we're headed towards Wally, where it's like okay everyone maybe we're already in a simulation <laughs> maybe we need a better simulation or or whatever but it's like okay well let's ignore some of the environmental consequences of all the crypto right, and right. Uh, mining and the blockchain and the energy consumption and just kind of create this different world that we can sort of escape to All right, so like the other side of this whole thing is that Bob Iger joins the board of Genies or creating social avatars, but now let's talk about the individuals themselves. Like, I think one of the problems, and disclaimer, like I'm pretty heavily invested in crypto and Web3 from a standpoint, you know, I'm an LP in multiple funds that are investing in the space. I choose rather to be in that side of it because I don't want to miss out. Potentially, I think it's very interesting, but there are a lot of concerns with this. There's a lot of concerns around regulation. There's a lot of concerns around securities law. And I think what I have a problem with is a lot of celebrities that are pumping stuff and shilling out their own NFTs or whatever it might be. Crypto, we've seen this happen before in the ICO boom back in 2017. But now you have folks like Paris Hilton and Jimmy Fallon where pushing their bored ape NFTs. For those that don't know, uh, these are digital art. It's an entire collection of apes. Jimmy Fallon recently bought an NFT, bought a Board Ape NFT. Paris Hilton bought a Board Ape NFT. Maybe they have a few. And they're on his show and they're talking about it in a way that was just a little bit like, I don't know, I saw right through that. It's like, look, you just bought this thing for $250,000. Obviously, you want all these fans to jump in as well and potentially raise the value of the price. And I thought it was like a little, in my opinion, a little distasteful because people are pretty impressionable and like we just don't have a lot of education in the space yet. I don't even know if that's legal. I mean, I guess it is legal because there's not really any regulation yet around it. But like you bought something and you're talking about it on air and you want the value to potentially go up. Like, are there any legal issues with this? Because soliciting money and all this stuff is illegal. There are myriad legal issues with this. Regulation is first and foremost. And so I think it's not correct to say that there isn't regulation in place. I think the question is, whether these things are securities and should they be regulated by the SEC, like stocks and bonds and other securities. And so that's actually being sort of played out in court right now. And maybe Congress has to step in and, and do a revision to the Securities Act to say what NFTs are or aren't. 
But just to give you a little bit of background, let's talk about investing. You're a sophisticated investor. You said you're an LP in multiple funds. If someone asks you to invest or you get an opportunity to invest, you're going to ask some questions about what the company does or what the offering is, who's running it, what else have they done, what is your likely return going to be, and how long is it going to take, and what are the risks, right? So you're going to evaluate the investment before you decide to put your money into it. Right. And that's what we want to have, right? We want to have markets where people sort of understand what they're investing in, have confidence that they're not being lied to. And so as long as we have that, free markets and investments can kind of thrive. And the problem is, and in the Great Depression, the U.S. passed laws to sort of create these frameworks for disclosure and for registration of securities. If people were going to invest in them, you had to sort of know what you were investing in. And there were penalties if you lied or if you didn't follow the rules because people were getting duped. And now I think that's going to sort of come back around. And so the question is whether NFTs are securities or whether they're not, like they're trading cards or digital versions of trading cards, which are commodities and regulated sort of in a completely different manner. And if they are securities, then they would, in theory, be under the jurisdiction of the SEC. And someone like Jimmy Fallon or Paris Hilton could run afoul of the securities laws for essentially marketing, offering, gun jumping a security without properly registering it. And that's sort of playing out in court because there's actually a lawsuit. Dapper Labs was sued. They're, right. I don't know if you know, they're the NBA top shot. Uh, someone filed a class action against them saying that the NFTs, which are NBA moments, were securities, uh, which were sold in violation of the securities laws because they weren't registered and there's no information about them. Right. You know, that case hasn't been decided, but if it doesn't, assuming it doesn't settle out of court, there's going to be a lot of interesting ramifications for the NFT world. And like, to be clear again, like I'm a generally, I'm a fan. I think NFTs are interesting. I think they're really cool. I love what they do for a lot of artists. Um, I have a lot of friends who are in the space. I personally own NFTs. Again, my issue usually comes from like a messaging point of view and then, you know, taking advantage of folks that might not be well-educated. I think, you know, I was talking to someone recently. Her name is Rebecca Ackerman and she's a UX designer. She's worked at Google and she actually brought an interesting point up to me and she gave a great analogy where she talked about Jennifer Aniston endorses Aveeno skincare, but everybody knows what skincare is. Everybody uses skincare for the most part, right? And I personally use Aveeno. I'm a fan of Aveeno. It's not necessarily because of uh, Jennifer Aniston. I just like that lavender shit and it smells nice. But when it comes to like NFTs and crypto, we don't, like a lot of people don't know a lot about how this works and it's very confusing to folks. So it's like you're skipping this giant step. It would be the equivalent of like selling a Vino skincare and no one even knew what skincare is. And you're just saying, hey, you should use this, but there's no education around it. And I think the education and messaging is a big gap right now. It's something that we're personally working on. We're, we're gonna be launching a show around this, but I think more and more people, you know, especially those who are pretty bullish on Web3 and crypto know that for it to be really big, you have to onboard the hundreds of millions of people that are sitting on the sidelines that have no idea what's happening. And, and, you know, it's not that lawsuits aren't happening. I mean, Kim Kardashian and Floyd Mayweather have gotten into lawsuits for wrongfully or however illegally solicitating. I think it's called pump their, and dump, right? Yeah, pumping and dumping. They tout the value of something that the owners create. It's kind of a sham and they just generate all this interest. They sell to unsuspecting investors at these high valuations, and then the sort of the interest fades because there's nothing actually behind it. And then the initial investors made all this money. The owners made made a ton of money because they sold something for 
a lot more than it's in theory worth, and the people who overpaid end up holding the bag. So yeah, people have been getting duped with these investment schemes for as long as investing has been around, and I think that's kind of the risk here. Oh yeah, and it's interesting. I mean, as far as your Avino example, like skincare, maybe there's you know skincare that's at the top of the market. It's like say it's a hundred dollars a bottle, and then there's skincare that you can get at Target or whatever that's more of a retail sort of use or consumer use where it's like $10 a bottle and there's all sorts of different offerings in between. But you're in theory, you're buying that because it has a utility to you. Right. When you're talking about, you know, NFTs and I want to have an avatar that's a $300,000 ape versus a, you know, a $20,000 ape or a five, that's more of an, to me, it seems more like an investment than some. 100%. Right. So that's, I, I think, a critical distinction. And the creator of Ethereum, has gone on record saying, you know, I didn't create this network and this platform for people to trade million dollar sort of images of apes, right? I wanted it to do more than that. Although it's capable of doing that, I really wanted it to sort of solve problems, create a new way to plan cities, to have more fair elections, to enhance transparency, to diminish transaction costs, things like that, not necessarily allow a handful of people to accumulate tons of wealth. Yeah, and like, you know, there's a lot of interesting stuff and a lot of NFTs, I would say the majority of NFTs are built on Ethereum, which is a, a form of cryptocurrency and built on the blockchain. And they're called smart contracts and a lot of interesting use cases for smart contracts in Ethereum. Everything from like, switching titles really easily on real estate or even cars and not having so many middlemen and like estate planning without all the <clears throat> lawyers, uh, no offense, Paul, but it's like just all a lot of middlemen that could be taken out of the picture potentially to make smooth transactions. And there's a lot of interesting stuff there that we could get into later. But, you know, it's clear that a lot of people in Hollywood who have influence know that this space is really, really growing really fast. Like one of the interesting examples around it is not just the value in the different tokens and currencies. It's that a lot of really talented people who work at your traditional internet companies and tech companies are leaving. They're leaving the Googles, they're leaving the Apples, they're leaving Facebook, and they're going into like Web3 and crypto projects. And so you're seeing a lot more talent going into that space. And that includes like Hollywood talent that see this as an opportunity for all sorts of things and a lot of good things. I mean, Reese Witherspoon is someone that has made a statement that she's very interested in NFTs in the Web3 universe because you know she runs Hello Sunshine, which is a super successful production company that's created some amazing stuff, including the show that she's on, uh, Big Little Lies. Big Little Lies, yeah. Uh, great show. And she went on Twitter back in January, and she said, in the near future, every person will have a parallel digital identity. Avatars, crypto wallets, digital goods will be the norm. Are you planning for this? Which sounded very much like a very planned tweet like from someone on her team, because I didn't realize at the time that Hello Sunshine was making a big move here. And now they've recently announced that they're partnering up with World of Women, which is an NFT collective with over 10,000 works by women creators. And they want to develop these characters for feature films, scripted and unscripted TV shows and educational events. Yeah, and I think it's like, this is a very, very popular space right now. And, you know, she's smart. She's built an incredible production company that I think was valued at like 800 or $900 million recently. Yeah, I think they got bought by maybe Blackstone or Capital. It was someone made a big investment in them and... She's looking at this as an opportunity. And she's not the first one. Like Mila Kunis did this with uh, Stoner Cats, which is uh, essentially a bunch of stone cats that have these characters. And they were building like a TV show around it. And they're raising the money through NFTs and crypto. So it's interesting. And, and I think that, again, 
I had an opinion on Reese Witherspoon before. I was like, I was kind of like eye roll when I saw the tweet, but then I see what she's doing right now. And if like, again, it's everyone from Bob Iger joining the board of genies to Reese Witherspoon using her platform and her production company. And in this case, she's doing a good thing. It's like bringing more women creators to the, to the fold. And what are the different ways to make money here? Because like, let's just be honest, at the end of the day, this is all about profit. These are companies that need to perform well for them to create more and more content. And it's one of those things where the content can be great. It could be a lot of educational stuff. It could be empowering a lot of people. But let's be very clear. You're doing this because you want upside and you want to build sustainable revenue and grow the value of your company. And I think it's interesting that she's gotten into the space. Essentially, that's the point of the regulation is if these things are securities, then the companies that are issuing them need to be transparent about what they are, what they aren't what the value proposition is and what the risks are. And right now there's just a lot of excitement without a lot of narrative. And I think that's kind of the risk that we see sort of on the horizon is that people don't really know what they're investing in or if they're investing, they may not be investing, right? Maybe they, they're just collecting and they're not actually having a view towards profit, but I think that's a harder thing to justify. Well, let's bring up the last thing before we end our show. Let's actually talk about homeboy Tom Brady who just retired and he endorsed an NFT company called Autograph that's based in LA that helps athletes. He unretired, by the way. Well, I know, I know. I was going to get to that, but like he did unretire within like a few weeks. Retired, joins his company, Autograph, endorses it, helps athletes and entertainers launch and promote their NFTs. And it's interesting, like he's clearly been someone who's of a fan of crypto. He has the laser eyes avatar on his Twitter, which essentially you're a Bitcoin fan. And he went and said, on Instagram, he said, the future is exciting. I'm fortunate to have co-founded incredible companies like Autograph.io. And then he goes back and now he's back in the game. He's going to do one more season, I believe. And so I'm kind of wondering, like, do you think he could potentially be playing again so that his social platform is even bigger as he's co-founded this company and he has like all these relationships with these athletes? That's where my head goes, but I'm just usually like, you know, I'm always thinking of like, what is the other angle for someone to do something when you just retired for like, what, a month? Six weeks. Yeah. So listen, I mean, that's an interesting thought. I hadn't thought about it that way. So Tom Brady is greatest quarterback of all time, maybe greatest football player of all time. He has won seven Super Bowls. So I understand when someone like that would probably have a hard time giving it up, especially because he's still performing at a high level. So he retired, they lost in the playoffs and he probably thought about it. Like, I assume it's a very addictive thing. It's a lifestyle, the way yeah. that he trains and the way that he eats and the way that he sort of like mentally gets into this season. And and he probably feels, I would imagine, kind of like a god when he's out there. And so to take that feeling away is probably really difficult. And that's why after six weeks, he was like, this is crazy. I need to go back. Separately, as you said, he's a sophisticated business person. He's got an equity stake in FTX and then he founded Autograph.io. So He's planning for life after football, but I don't think he's quite ready to say goodbye to football. That's fair. That's fair. And it will be interesting. Like, again, I'm all for athletes having any type of platform to create revenue after they've retired, because obviously it's like- Except know, for uh, gambling, because that kind of defeats- I mean, if he were in a, like a, a sports <laughs> books situation, yeah, yeah, and then yeah, totally. he like incompleted a pass, or he had a, threw a costly interception that maybe cost- you know, billions of dollars in terms of sports books. I mean, that that I think is a gray area at the very least. I would try to steer clear of that. But I agree with you that he has this amazing platform. He's obviously got a ton of money and resources and connections and notoriety. So he can, the sky's the limit. Yeah, and we'll end it with the funny thing that happened on Twitter between Tom Grady and Ethereum founder Vitalik Buterin, who is this young kid and he created Ethereum and he's like, 
really interested in helping change the world. And there was all these memes because he was on the Time cover and he, you know, he's a skinny guy. And so all these memes started going crazy. And some of them read, anyone else think he looks like Tom Brady did meth? Tom Brady with the reverse Captain America super soldier serum. Uh, Bro looks like a dystopian Tom Brady. And uh, it was funny, Vitalik went on Twitter and, you know, he's got a good sense of humor and he posted the memes and he said, I didn't even know who Tom Brady is and had to ask around. My best guess was that he was an actor from (laughs) Mission Impossible. And uh, I think the beauty here of Twitter, uh, which can be beautiful sometimes, Tom Brady responded and said, what's up, Vitalik? You may not know me, but just wanted to say I'm a big fan of yours. Thank you for everything you built in the world of crypto. Otherwise, autograph wouldn't have been possible. I hope to meet you someday. You're the GOAT. And I thought this is just a lovely exchange of two worlds being combined here. Tom Brady is obviously pretty well-versed in the space, and I think he's got a good sense of humor too. So I'll be really interested to see how this all plays out. We sh- we're going to be covering this a lot more because there's so much stuff happening in the space. And obviously in the world of entertainment, there's a lot of crossover with NFTs and stuff. So Paul, again, thank you for your insights because uh, you're the man. Hey, I'm happy to be here. and happy to talk about this. It's very interesting and it changes week to week. It changes week to week and we'll make sure to be covering it. In any event, I did want to say this was not legal advice. This is for entertainment purposes only. We hope you enjoyed the show. The views expressed are solely our own. Make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you choose to listen. And we'll be back next week. This episode is edited and produced by Valentino Rivera, Marco Seiler Gonzalez, with assistant producer Justin Sanchez and assistant research producer Haas Nasser. Thanks, everyone. We'll see you next week.